where I see weight in a clinical setting is it's a huge distractor from the conversation we need to have. When we drag the scale into every single one of those conversations, we are missing our precious opportunity to do what we're there to do, which is provide care. Welcome to Behind the Binge, the podcast where we bring forth much needed conversations about binge eating recovery and ditching diet culture. I'm your host, Marissa Kaimilik, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and binge eating coach. This is our space to dive into practical tips to heal from binge eating, challenge your diet culture beliefs, discuss the nuances of intuitive eating, and empower you to recover. Let's start exploring what's behind the binge. Hello everyone, welcome back to Behind the Binge. It's your host, Marissa, and I'm so excited for you all to meet Dr. Maggie Landes. Give us a round of applause because this is such a fun episode. We know that when it comes to health and medicine, doctors are the authority. They are the experts that we look to for credible knowledge and credible education on the best things we can do for our health. However, what happens when the healthcare industry has been influenced by diet culture? What happens when both diet culture and healthcare continue to perpetuate the same stigmatizing messages that are actually contributing to poor health outcomes and lower life expectancy, not the weight itself? I'm not going to spoil the whole episode. Let's get to know Maggie a bit more, shall we? Dr. Maggie Landis is a board-certified physician, public health nutritionist, and anti-diet wellness expert. She created her signature Get Eat Fluenced coaching program to help women who are exasperated with chronic dieting be able to fix their food overwhelm and live a full and unrestricted life pursuing their personal passions without the distraction of rigid eating behavior. She is also the creator and host of the Eat Fluencer podcast, where she and her guests dig into the mindset work required to construct a healthy, complete, and high-quality life unlimited by the oppression of diet culture. So I'm going to let us dive in because this is a long one, but you will not regret listening to it all the way through. Hope you enjoy. All right, Maggie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Of course, I love it. Talking is my love language. (laughs) Amazing. Well, we'll do a lot of that today, I am sure. I am super excited for you to share your story from being in that weight-centric healthcare system to now working as an anti-diet, weight-neutral practitioner on your page and everything you're doing. So can't wait to dive in. But before we do, why don't you just give us an introduction? Who are you? Where are you from? Right. What's my deal? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am actually by training a pediatrician. I've been practicing pediatrics for 19 years. So I have both the lived experience of diet culture times decades of time uh, and almost 20 years in clinical practice. And I want to tell you how I got into the work I'm doing now, because about five years ago, I had a major life event and I was diagnosed with cancer myself. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm in recovery. I'm doing great. So yes, thank you. But here's what happened. So I've always loved food. I've always had an interest in nutrition, like many people in health professions do. But I'll be honest, I took what I learned in school and in my training at face value. You Mm -hmm. just have to, you know, when you're- What what kind of nutrition training do you have in medical school? Oh, uh, not much. 
I will tell you, it's very limited and it's horrifying actually how limited it is. And of course I, you know, I went to school 20 years ago. So I would hope that some things are starting to change. And I think they are, but I will say that the nutrition training we do get as doctors is very granular. So Mm -hmm. it's like how to write TPN and how to take care of ICU patients that are NPO for prolonged periods of time. It's stuff like that. Not like here's the average person in the grocery store and they want to know what to put in the cart and what to feed their kids. It's not that kind of talk. So we're pretty ill-prepared, I would say, in terms of our nutrition education. But what we did learn we take it face value. Cause frankly, when you're drinking out of a fire hose in school with that amount of information to learn about all the things, we don't take the time on any one topic to do a real deep dive independent study. I mean, if there's a professor wearing a white coat, standing in front of the lecture hall, telling us that eating too many fats is bad for you and you'll get a heart attack and die, then we say, okay, I believe you. Mm. You just move on. And it's not, the system is broken. It's not to blame an individual provider, but What happened was when I got sick with my cancer, uh, a couple things happened. One is that I had some time to do nothing but basically read and be by myself because I was like isolated from my life and had to quit work for a while. But I started really reading like the science of nutrition. And I'm not talking Instagram. I'm talking like literature, articles, going to these meetings online and with speakers and stuff. And I realized wow, there's not really science to support what essentially I've been telling patients for at the time, 15 years, that's kind of scary. Mm -hmm. So I thought, of course, the first thing we do is we blame ourselves, right? So I said, well, I'm sure that I'm out of date. I'm sure I didn't keep up with the latest and greatest. So I did what any crazy person does is I said, I'm going to graduate school because you can't go to medical school twice. So I thought, well, what's the next best thing I can do instead of repeating medical school? I'll just go get a master's in nutrition and see what all the people are learning now. All right. So this is back in 2017, I applied to graduate school and I've now finished. I have a master's in public health nutrition. And most of the people in my student group were going to go on and do internships and become dietitians, etc. But guess what? It's the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is what got me fired up because I was like, Oh no. I mean, I was hoping that I was the problem. I just had to buff up my education a little bit, but unfortunately I've got textbooks sitting here that were printed in the year 2017 that have the food pyramid from the 1970s in the front cover of the book. Yeah. So how are we going to get out of this? If we're training the dietitians and the doctors with this antiquated, totally unsubstantiated information, I was horrified. When did you realize that there's no evidence to back these nutrition philosophies being pushed in healthcare? Was there something or a moment, a, a seminar that stood out to you that really shifted your perspective when it came to the relationship between food, nutrition, weight, and health? Yeah. I can't say there was a a specific event, but what I will tell you, the main theme that I kept seeing was that diets lead to weight cycling. Weight cycling is bad to our health. And they've proven it a lot of different ways with different populations and different times and different demographics. But essentially, if your weight keeps fluctuating up, down, up, down, up, down, that is worse for your body than even being at a higher weight and staying there. 
And when I read that, I was like, oh dear, because that's Mm -hmm. all we do. I mean, every 45 year old woman can tell you that when you diet, your weight goes up, down, up, down, up, down. Because if it only went down and stayed down, we would be done talking about this. It would be easy. There wouldn't be all of these people. Yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't we be done by now? Like, that's what I say all the time. I'm like, we would be done by now. The fact that there's so many choices just tells Mm -hmm. you that there's not an answer. Right. Because if there was an answer, we would have done it. So that was the theme that kept coming up for me when I was reading and seeing who funds these studies, how many people were in there, how long was the follow-up? Like, you know, and I don't hold everybody in the world accountable for knowing how to scrutinize academic literature. That's not their job. But I think it is the job of particularly healthcare professionals and people who are really held to that higher standard of knowledge to do those things and not be just repeating stuff that's like headline news to the general population. I I feel like it's really irresponsible, but the problem starts with, like I said, the education, when you don't have that education, either formal education or your training or your internship, you fill in the gaps of your knowledge with your own personal lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so doctors and dietitians and everybody else are members of this culture that we are all conditioned by, and we're not exempt from it. We see the same labels on foods. We go to the same restaurants. We watch the same internet, you know? So when you have an inadequate education paired with individually influenced providers, and then the whole other can of worms that we don't need to unpack here, but you drop them into a clinical setting where they have, let's say 10 minutes And there's, we've already been talking longer than 10 minutes. Right. So there's no hope of this being fixed in the Mm -hmm. clinical environment. At least not, that's not the first place it's going to get fixed. So I've essentially more or less left my clinical practice now to pursue this anti-diet or undoing weight stigma, whatever language you want to use, but it's, it has to be done outside of the exam room so that then we can bring it to the place where it needs to be. Like you said, you get those five, 10 minutes and often that blanket statement, generalized treatment of weight loss for anyone who may be living in a bigger body can get slapped onto so many different health treatment plans and really miss the mark on prescribing something that would be a sustainable for the person and actionable, right? We always forget that weight isn't an action. action. It's it's not a behavior. And so we talk about all these things, but you're exactly right. They don't allow for enough time in those examination rooms to get into all of that stuff. So it really does come from the system, the policies, but also from patient advocacy and through the work that both of us are doing, inform the public and inform other medical professionals about this other approach to minimize the harm right. that focusing on weight. Well, here's can do. where I see weight in a clinical setting is it's a huge distractor from the conversation we need to have. And of course it does a major disservice to people in large bodies because they have had a stigmatizing experience starting in the waiting room. Truthfully, they Mm -hmm. sit in furniture that doesn't fit them. They get put in a gown that doesn't fit them. They get dragged to a scale in the hallway. They get handed some little BMI chart before they even see the whites of the eyes of the doctor. They, the blood pressure cuff doesn't fit everything. I don't need to tell you because you know how this is. And so that's a problem. That's a major problem. But let me tell you what, we are missing 
the other half of the people too, because when we see somebody in a quote, normal standard, middle of the chart, green light body, and we say, oh, congratulations, you haven't gained any weight or you've lost weight or whatever. And we don't even ask that they have an eating disorder, that they have a mental health problem, that they're taking drugs. We're missing them too. So the weight is a distraction to people in all sizes of bodies, frankly. I, I, I just, my thing is we should just stop. Like, why do we even, there is truly, truly about, I don't know, maybe five or six clinical conditions where weight at every visit is really necessary for appropriate treatment. That's it. And I'm talking chemotherapy, dialysis, eating disorder, recovery, heart failure. Like this is not the average thing. I'm not talking about when you go to your doctor for back pain or a headache or acne or a stomach ache or a fever or whatever. Mm -hmm. When we drag the scale into every single one of those conversations, we are missing our precious opportunity to do what we're there to do, which is provide care. Oh my God, preach. I'm like, yeah, well, I know if we go back to what you're saying about just the stigma that's there, I've recently read a study that shows that people who report weight stigmatizing care in a health setting have an 60%, I think it's a 60% increased risk of death regardless of BMI. So just the stigma alone is increasing their risk of, of mortality. And it has nothing to do with their body size. It has to do with these two major components. And I've read studies just speaking to what you're saying. One is that there's a trauma stress response that is developed after a stigmatizing experience. And particularly if it's a repeating theme, those cause real physiologic changes. They, they raise your blood pressure. They raise your heart rate. They increase your cortisol, which increases Mm -hmm. your glucose, all the things. So it causes a physical response and it makes patients not come back because that's the big problem. So if you come in for a sinus infection and my answer to you is lose weight and you number one are stressed out about that, and you don't come back, there is so much more chance that in 20 years, you're not going to get your mammogram and you have advanced breast cancer, or you're not going to get your blood pressure taken and you have a stroke. Then we say, well, let's do a study on this. Well, look at this. All these fat people had strokes and have breast cancer. So let's publish a study that says, if you're fat, you'll get strokes and breast cancer. And then we use that study, which was not controlled for any sort of social experience. And then we beat the patients over the head to lose more weight. Mm -hmm. And then there's the cycle. And we just, we're propagating this conversation by the way we handle the conversation. When you see this and when you start to realize this is happening, it's frankly, it's horrifying. (laughs) It's just the research is there. And on top of that, the lived experiences are there. And when you actually get a chance to hear from those who have experienced this stigmatizing care that has caused harm in their life from a misdiagnosis or improper, inequitable treatment, it's heartbreaking. I know the listeners who are new to this topic right now are wondering, well, what is this person? Right, right. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm so glad you somehow found this. If you have no idea what what we're talking about here, yeah. (laughs) But it's that question of 
how did this happen? Why is there research that shows a correlation between weight and health? And why are we now here saying that's actually not as black and white as it may seem? Right. Well, so and the the thing that I know you understand, but many people listening to your podcast, if they're not scientists, may not understand this, that correlation or association is different than causing something. So there is data that shows there's a correlate. Correlation just means two things occur more frequently at the same time. That's all it means. It doesn't mean one is the other. And I use an example all the time. I'm like, okay, in the summer, there's more people eating popsicles and your electricity bill goes up. Okay. Well, eating popsicles doesn't make your electricity bill go up. The fact that it's hot. That's a good summer. The thing that we need to get down to the middle of is that it's hot and it's summer. And so therefore the two things happen. So the, the problem is we look at the correlations in these things where more people in larger bodies have more diabetes. I just use that as an example. Okay. Cause that's a common one. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, there may be more people in larger bodies that have diabetes, but have we controlled for the fact that just what we were talking about, they were stigmatized in the medical setting. Have we talked about whether they have access to healthcare, whether they're insured, whether they have adequate food, are they literate and can understand the instructions that are given to them at a diabetic appointment? A lot of that stuff gets not really well discerned. And then they post a headline, you know, and it's a bad game of telephone. So you have to understand when people are doing research, first of all, nutrition research is extremely hard to do, extremely hard to do because we are all eating all the time. And so to control something that involves anybody's diet, no matter what it is you're studying, unless you have them like captive, like the Minnesota starvation experiment, there, there is not a lot of concrete ways to study that. There's just not, it's very different than studying bacteria in a test tube where you're controlling all the conditions. So the the bottom line is any of this stuff is only showing an association that things are occurring together. That doesn't mean one makes the other one happen. And honestly, there's lots of uh, studies that show the same thing for people that are impoverished or people of color, or elderly people, or whatever. I mean, you can fill in the the ism that you want, and there's associative things that show there's worse health outcomes, but that doesn't mean that the problem is to make the old people young and make the black people white and make the women into men. I mean, that's not how we do it. But we have this idea that, like you said, weight is under our control and it's an action item and we need to make all the fat people thin because that's the problem. But the pro- that's not really the problem. Every time I read a new study, I'm like, oh dear, okay, we, are, we are in this so far. And like I said, I'm not here to blame the doctor or the dietitian. They're doing the best they can. And I would like to think that most of them are trying and have in their best interest, the patient, but they've got a inadequate education. They have their hands tied behind their back with the whole system And we're fighting the food industry and the diet industry and the advertising and the marketing and the fashion industry and all the noise, you know, we get 10 minutes with our patients and they go spend the next 12 months minus 10 minutes listening to all that noise. So it's really 
I mean, it's just really challenging. It's really an uphill battle. But I think from the patient's point of view, even an awareness that the science might be biased, that the experience in your clinician's office might be under the influence of diet culture, just at least have like your antenna up is a good first step. I always tell my clients that I know that medical professionals around you have all of these big degrees and have had all of this education, but at the end of the day, you know yourself better than anyone else. And so if you feel that a treatment plan or something going on in your doctor's office is not actually serving you well, you have the right and authority to get a second opinion or to advocate for yourself and saying that approach would not be helpful for my health do you have an alternative? Because if a doctor is sitting there telling you to do a food restriction, lose weight, and you personally know that your attempts to do that result in binge eating, eating disorder behaviors, weight cycling, stress, et cetera, then advocating and saying, that's actually not something that's helpful for me. What is another approach to the reason why you're trying to prescribe this? And honestly, asking why they are prescribing that can be helpful, but course, that's the part that's hard is we can't rely on just patient advocacy for equitable care. And it is something that really comes down to the, the systems. And I honestly think more acceptance and ability to refer out, because like you said, in medical school, you are learning about such a wide range of processes, body processes and disease states to really hone in and get specific on this weight science and nutrition. I mean, I don't really think that's possible, but how about we bring more of an education to how to refer out to professionals who do dedicate that time to nutrition science, weight science. I mean, in all different health professions, instead of just relying on simply the doctor to, to try to do it all, because I don't think that's fair to anyone. Right. Well, and it's challenging because we want to deliver everything the patient needs in one, one visit, one interaction, because a, a lot of people aren't going to go to another place, another appointment, another day, they have to call off work, another, you know, so true. Yeah. But the same thing is that we just, the first step is not saying stuff that's just not true. That's the first step. There's good advice. And then there's also just not giving bad advice. And so I think the first step is to just don't say stuff that's not true. And I'm working on something that I think is going to help because I want to change the system. I have, you know, I want to go on a big, like big stage, change the conversation, change the medical education, change this. But for any individual patient, I know there's a lot of anxiety in going to a doctor. I don't get worked up about going to the doctor because I'm a doctor and I'm just comfortable in that environment. But most people are not comfortable speaking up. You're in a, a really a position of submission as the patient in a clinical encounter. That's just how our culture works. And so what I'm creating that I realize people need is they want scripting. Like they really want me to put the words in their mouth. Like when they go to the appointment and the doctor says, well, your knee pain will never get better unless you lose weight. Like what do they say in that moment? Because 
they can listen to your podcast and listen to my podcast and talk about this. And it seems all fine and good, but then when the rubber meets the road and they're intimidated and they've just been fat shamed in the doctor's office and they just saw their weight on the scale and they're sitting there with no clothes on and they just want, you know, what, what am I supposed to say? So I'm creating for my coaching clients, this sort of scripting, uh, resource because that's hard. I realize that that is really hard, you know, and it's beyond the doctor too. This is like, what do you say when the lady at the lunch table at work won't stop talking about her diet? What do you say when your husband tells you, you should not get a second helping of dinner? Like those situations, where does the mindset turn into action? I love that. Yeah. Because it is true. We can get so empowered by uncovering these truths about weights, lack of a a place in our health treatment. Yet when we're standing face-to-face with our doctor, who is so sure that our weight is our problem, how do we actually get the words out of our right. mouth. And, and do it in a respectful way. Exactly. I mean, I'm not, you know, exactly. So I'm not, I, we don't have to antagonize the doctor. Cause like I said, it's probably not that individual doctor's fault. It's so many things like we've exactly. talked about. Yeah. I, I setting, prom- setting that boundary of this is, is not an approach that I want to take for my, right. my own health treatment. Well, and that's okay. And let me tell you what the doctor will have plenty of ideas because they are not in the exam room with all the skinny people shrugging their shoulders saying, I have no idea. Right. What do I do with you? You're skinny. I can't tell you to lose weight. So I'm out of ideas there. That's not happening. We know how to treat health conditions in all different types of people. And you deserve in any body to get all the information mm-hmm. and then apply what applies to you. I kind of like working on both sides of the equation. I have the experience of being the clinician and knowing how all the clinicians got to this place because that was me for 15 years. And I, had I not gotten cancer and taken the time to do this independent study or whatever you want to call it, I would probably still be in the hospital and in the office handing out the AHA guidelines with the freaking food plate pyramid or whatever we're doing now. You just are just working so hard to even just tread water in a profession like that, that it's not usually ill will. It's usually you just don't know any different. A hundred percent. And I really love that clarification because a lot of times fighting these weight centric health systems can come across like we're trying, we're blaming doctors in some way. Doctors are so necessary and helpful in, I I mean, saving lives. And that's absolutely not the intention. And so at the end of the day, this boils down to a way deeper problem than simply, oh, a doctor in a a practitioner's office. It's the systems that are upheld that influence our policies and education in, in our universities. That's so much why I like connecting with people from different backgrounds. Like I love talking to dietitians and fitness professionals and people in the media and people that are more with the sort of advocacy and the policy side of things, because, and even educators, I mean, what, like our kids are learning in health class in their school Mm -hmm. systems and stuff like it's going to take all of those people plus more to change this conversation. The doctors can't change this. The government can't change this. The dietitians aren't going to change this. And so really collaborating with all the different disciplines 
where diet culture comes into play, which is everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's how it changes the education. That's how the doctors will change. That's how they will change their belief systems. That's how their education will change. That's how they will change as individuals, which is how the experience will change for the patients, which then hopefully will keep all of the patients in the system getting preventative health care. And then we can quit publishing studies about all the fat people getting diabetes who never went to a doctor's appointment when they were fat shame. I mean, like we got to break the cycle. You have to just start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, start somewhere, right? Yeah. Get that empowerment out there to empower those people who have been in those situations to hear that there's alternatives and there are people who are, are on their side. So we keep talking about diet culture and I just can hear this in the back of my head right now, because when I talk to people a lot about, oh, diets don't work and diets cause harm, it gets this idea of, oh yeah, 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 fad diets, fad diets don't work. Keto, uh, low carb, any extreme diets. Yeah, of course those don't work, but like moderation, calorie restricting, those work to lose weight, right? So I want, I want us to talk about that. Can you clarify that in all of this research that you've done when it comes to dieting and weight loss, is it clear that it is just the fad diets that are causing this harm or moderate forms of intentional weight loss are also not necessarily the most healthful approach? Right. Well, and to back up and to define diet culture with like a lowercase D, of course, everybody knows diets, like with a capital D diets, like Noom and Weight Watchers and all this stuff, like they don't work. And and here's the thing is even the people selling them know they don't work, which is why they don't use the word diet anymore. So we know diet's like a four letter word. We stop saying diet. Now we say wellness or lifestyle or whatever. Style, totally. Yeah. And that'll turn into a bad word enough to come up with a new word. That's as an aside. So, but diet culture is not just diets. Now diets would fall into that, of course, but really it's a social belief system, a cultural construct that number one, weight and health are synonyms, which they are not. Number two, that your weight is under your immediate control. And number three, it is your social or cultural obligation to control it. And that's basically in a nutshell what it means. So if you are doing any behavior around food or eating that is playing into either the fact that this false fact that weight equals health, that you can control your weight and you should control your weight, which all those things are doing. See, that's the thing. The truth is weight and health are different words with different definitions. They are not synonyms. And I would argue that they are only very tangentially even related at all. Mm -hmm. Number two, even for a second, I'll play devil's advocate. If you are just so hung up on the idea that bigger is less healthy. Okay, great. How is it going telling your patients to lose weight? Okay. It's even if that is the goal, which I don't agree with, it's not working because it's not an action, as you said, an action item. You don't do weight. You don't do it. And they'll say, well, yes, I do. I do this. I do this. Well, what do you do? Well, I drink more water while I go for a walk. Okay. Now we're talking about something we can do, right? Mm -hmm. Like let's make a list. We can make a list of a hundred health promoting behaviors that have nothing to do with the scale or your weight. And you should do all of them. You should do as many of them as you can, but your weight is not under your control. And furthermore, it is not your obligation to even attempt to control it. 
because your health doesn't depend on it. And more than that, your value as a human doesn't depend on it. So that's where we have to get. You probably hear this all the time too, that the sort of the misunderstanding is we're just saying it doesn't matter that everybody's healthy and it doesn't matter. And you just drink Dr. Pepper all day and lay in your bed and you're fine. You know, what everyone thinks we're promoting when we're saying, no, don't diet. You don't need to lose weight. They're like, oh, you just want us to eat pizza and burgers all day. No, we're, it's still health that from our perspective is the, is the goal, but it actually doesn't have to be the goal for anyone if they don't want it to be. Right. And even if it is the goal, which most people, it is a goal. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with your weight. Like, let's talk about what you can do. I am all about preventing strokes, reducing your blood pressure, increasing your aerobic exercise capacity, you know, blah, 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 having stress reduction and all that we can, like, there's just an unlimited number of things, none of which involve me telling you how many pounds you weigh. Yeah. So let's just stop. I just want to stop because like I said before, it is such a distraction and we don't get to the other part of the conversation if we are just hung up on this numbers game. And it's not just people in big bodies because we are missing the opportunity to communicate with, connect with and educate people in small bodies too, many of whom have eating disorders or other problems that are not visible to the eye that we aren't even scratching the surface of. In fact, we possibly might even be encouraging when we say, yay for you, look how skinny you are. A thousand percent, right. I've told this story in my podcast before about when I was struggling with an eating disorder and I tried to cry for help in my doctor's office saying, yeah, I'm kind of doing these things. She's like, oh, well, you're a healthy weight. You're fine. Like, just make sure you're eating enough. What? Yeah, okay. I may on the outside look again, quote unquote normal, but on the inside, it was like I was barely eating anything. And so how could we ever say that that is health promoting? And that exactly what you said, my body size was distracting from the real harm that was going on. And that across all body sizes is just a fact right now. And it's really, it's really sad. And in talking about diet culture as a whole, those belief systems that uphold this value of, of your body and thinness and some general ideal of, of what you should be looking like when or how do we start to come out of that? We've talked about it like a little bit, but when we think about weight, inclusive care, weight, neutral care, if BMI is gone, which it absolutely should be, if the scale is removed from the doctor's office and I come in and I have diabetes. What do you envision as the future of a healthcare system like that? I want that interaction, that clinical interaction, that space to be filled with actionable items that are within the scope of realism for that patient. Because every patient has different opportunities or limitations. And so There's no one size answer to anything as far as I'm concerned, unless you're Mm -hmm. suturing skin up. I mean, pretty much everything is really individualized and not in a weird way. I'm talking about something that is totally possible to get in a mainstream healthcare system. I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to cash in their 401k to go get a private cash pay functional medicine doctor. If you have that opportunity because you have that, that's great. I'm talking about regular old clinics, like regular old doctor's offices and hospitals. If we could somehow take 
the weight conversation just off the table. And I have this radical idea of truly removing the scale. I mean, physically taking it out of the office. So it's not even a thing. I have this little dream of doing a Ted talk. And this is my idea is just take it out because we can't trust the doctors to not use it if it's sitting there. Cause there's a, yeah, I had a, a conversation with a client the other day. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my doctor has to weigh me. My doctor has to weigh me. I kept saying, why you keep, well, because of, and then they finally got to it. Well, they always say I'm at risk of diabetes because it runs in my family. So they have to weigh me to keep track of my risk. And I said, ah, as far as I know, your weight doesn't diagnose diabetes. So if they have a concern, they can take your blood sugar. They can take your A1C and that will tell them more than the scale ever could. And then she was just like, oh, you're right. Weight actually doesn't diagnose diabetes. And I was like, why are we weighing her every session? Anyway, side note. (laughs) No, but let me, but see, that is exactly the proof of it. And let me give you another analogy that will make this crystal clear for your listeners that, okay, with this whole correlation versus causation thing, correlation that things go together, that there is some, eh, maybe, okay, mediocre science that shows there's a correlation between large bodies and the increased risk of diabetes over time. Okay. There's also research that shows the lower your income level, your risk of diabetes goes up, meaning that poor people get more diabetes. That's, that is a correlative thing that is in the literature too. Mm -hmm. So really weighing patients is the same as if I told you I'm running a diabetes clinic and we're, or we're having a diabetes screening event. I need everybody to bring me their tax return from last year. Oh my God. Yeah. That's real. And I would say, mm-hmm. okay, your income was this. You probably have diabetes. Your income was this. You probably don't have diabetes. So we would be misdiagnosing all the poor people with diabetes and missing the rich people who have diabetes because we would give them a pass. So the scale is really I mean, it sounds asinine to make an analogy like that, but the scale is almost like that. We are using it as a tool for something it's not intended to be. Yeah. And using it completely ignores the other correlation of weight cycling, increasing your risk of diabetes and all these other things. So now we're treating it and that that amplifies another risk of weight cycling. the, The chance, the chance of your patient weight cycling, if you tell them to lose weight is extremely high. Yes. Because that is what intentional weight loss does most of the time is sure anyone listening who has dieted to lose weight knows that that. and you usually gain it back and more and then you go back down then you come back and it's like, why can't I just maintain? Well, because your body's fighting it and and it's that sort of approach is too one-sided. We're not looking at health as a whole because I can guarantee if you were to define health you would not say eat less, which is where we get to this idea that that's just irresponsible and generalized. So the solution is this, take the weight off the table and the conversation about weight off the table. Okay. And then all that space that we now have in that clinical encounter, fill it with actionable things, actionable things, actual things that are within the realm of what the patient can do. Okay. So telling a single mom with four kids who works three jobs that she needs to go to CrossFit at 4am every morning is probably not great advice. Okay. But what is actionable, what is within reach of the patient 
and then setting them up, motivating them, making the right connections or whatever is required, giving them the information to then go do it. You know, the next right thing, we don't need everybody to totally like radically change their lives. We just need everybody to do like the next right thing. Mm -hmm. That's how the, the needle in terms, and this is the public health part of me talking, the needle for the population is not moved by a handful of people doing radical things. It is moved by large groups of people doing just a little bit. And then this would help the problem. So then you have a better relationship with patients. You have healthier patients. You have people coming back and getting care. You're reducing the medical cost to the system because all these people don't pop up later in life with advanced disease because you've actually taken care of them on the front end. And then we can have this money. And what can we do with the money? Well, maybe we can fix some of the food deserts. As bad as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, like this is bad and it makes something else bad. It makes something else bad. You can also fix one thing and it fixes the next thing. It fixes the next thing. And so- we just have to start. And in my opinion, the starting point is taking the conversation about weight out of the practice of health and medicine, period, full stop. That is the starting point. Oh my God. That needs to be the title of your, your <laughs> Ted talk or your book yeah, one day, just take right. the scale out of medicine because it really, can it, you imagine if you walked into a doctor's office and I don't care if you're listening to this, what you weigh, how big or small your body is. Can you imagine how different the experience would be if you went from the waiting room to the exam room and never saw a scale? I know my experience would change. I'm sure everybody's would, because even if you don't think you're really affected by seeing your weight or having them hand you your weight on a little card or whatever, everybody has got some hidden baggage about that. There's always, yeah. And there's always an assumption that will be made based on your weight, which is really sad. Like I said, for me, the assumption was I was healthy when I was not for someone who is in a bigger body size, they might have assumptions made that their health is poor when it's not. And so removing the scale removes those biases that cloud the judgment of these next steps for what the appointment's even about, because I don't think anyone goes, well, maybe people do, goes to the doctor to say, hey, I need to lose weight. Tell me what to do. They go for some other reason. I mean, they might go sometimes for, I know some people do that, but it's like that, that we can remove that completely. If we can say it's really not about the weight, let's actually approach health in ways that are controllable because we can't really control our weight. We don't need any more information. That is not the problem. Nobody is having problems dieting, having problems with their health, having problems with their weight because they truly cannot figure out whether or not a chicken breast has protein in it. Even the people with the least amount of resources have resources for stuff like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we are just so distracted by all this information, because we don't have information in a way that's relevant. We don't have information in a way that fits into our needs. And we're not matching up what we know to be true and what is actually true. And then doing the things that we can do. And the, the healthcare professionals, I feel like are a key piece in, they're kind of like a catalyst in that we can't, we don't do anything for the patients. You still have to 
do it yourself. We're not going home with you. Neither is your dietitian or your personal trainer or your therapist or anybody. You still have to do the work, but we are catalyzing that reaction for you to be able to do it. And I just want to see that happen in a like positive way that establishes trust. A lot of people have lost trust in healthcare because of this reason. I mean, we've lost trust for a lot of reasons, but this is a major one. I want people to go to the doctor. I want them to go when they need to go to the doctor, whether it's related to an eating disorder or related to infection or whatever the problem is. I, I want them to utilize the system the way it was supposed to be set up. And I want the providers to have a format and a environment where things are happening with the patients. I feel like this, like this scale is like the big Berlin wall or something like it is just completely obstructing our ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it just has to go. It does. (laughs) It just has to go. And and I can tell patients all day long, you don't have to be weighed. Just tell your doctor, you don't want to be weighed, but I, I know what it feels like. I've gotten on the scale, my doctor's office, because I just don't want to put up the fight. I'm just frankly over it. And I say, whatever, fine. You know, but most people, it, it would just be such a great experience if that wasn't a conversation. Yeah. And so thinking about making these changes, they're huge. Like we said, it's a system. It's not one person in one doctor's office. And so it can sound really overwhelming. I'm sure if, if someone here is like, I I am stigmatized in my doctor's office and I want all of these changes and feel like all of a sudden there's a huge responsibility on you. But I just want the listeners to know that you're one person, take care of yourself and what's going to best support you and think about, again, your actionable ways of pursuing whatever it is that you're going out to the doctor's office to pursue. One way would be to have something like you offer where you provide some ways to communicate with your doctor. So that way it does take this huge responsibility off of the patient. For a listener who's like, yes, I'm with you, Maggie. Like, and I, now what? <laughs> let, let me smash the scale in the doctor's office. What do oh. they what do they do now? Because that's a huge task at hand for sure. Yes. Well, I like to really let people know that everybody has a sphere of influence. I'm not asking all of you to totally shake the tree and to- upend the entire American healthcare system. Okay. If you can. Fantastic. I'd like your phone number. We're working on it. Trust me. But until then, you have the ability to get good, solid information. And it doesn't even have to cost money. Okay. Listening to this podcast, following the right people on social media, checking out some books from your library to be informed. That's a good first step. And know that the way that you talk about this, and I mean, just your like little micro sphere of influence, it might just be your partner in your house. It might be your one best friend. It might be your mom. It might, whatever your boss, they're listening and they're watching. And I'm not saying your job is to go out there and change people, but I think your job is to at least make this situation no worse. And you have no idea who might be sparked by that conversation and they might say something to somebody else and they might start listening to this podcast and they might read the book and okay, now we've gotten somewhere, right? To not be intimidated by advocating for yourself, of course, in your doctor's office, but also having 
boundaries and having that ability to know that you're working in your little individual sphere. And you may touch a lot of people that you don't even know. You don't have to be a influencer with a capital I. You don't have to be a doctor. (laughs) You don't have to have a million followers on Facebook. You just, you just have to talk to somebody else and say, no, this conversation is not okay with me. I'm not going to talk about that. No, I don't want to know how many calories are in this. Acting your life as if you have freedom from this diet culture oppression just helps all of us. It helps you. It helps all of us though. Yeah. Because the uh, whole point is to get back to a life that's just life. It's not a life revolving around weight. And so by bringing yourself always back to to your core principles and the things that you align yourself with to best serve your life and best serve your health will continue to influence other people around you without having to get up on the stage and, and give your, your huge speech. It's just simply, nope, I'm, my life is aligning like this. These are the things that I believe in and just continuing to keep yourself empowered by that stance. And you have value as you are right now. Everybody listening to this can adopt some of these ideas today. You don't have to wait until fill in the blank. You don't have to wait until your next doctor's appointment. You don't have to wait until you start some diet. You don't have to wait until you fit into some pants or whatever. Like this is not actually about the physical body really at all. I'm not saying that in some sort of woo woo metaphysical thing, but it really is that every person has value and everybody has something to contribute. And everybody is a part of this solution or everybody's a part of the problem. So at least make yourself not part of the problem. And if you're willing to do so, make yourself part of the solution and we'll get there. Like we'll get there as a group. I'm sure of it. I I think in our lifetime, this will be a totally different conversation in a handful of years. I really do. Oh yeah. I mean, it's already moving that way with a whole directory online of doctors who align with the health at every size philosophy and practice from a weight inclusive, weight neutral lens. And so it really is starting to move so much more research is more publicized in the media showing these things. It is just going to be one of those things that we really have to continue to, to show the nuance of weight science because it can feel really overwhelming and confusing when you first learn that, oh, this system that we've been practicing under for decades and centuries is actually false. And we've actually been under some sort of big myth this whole time. Can It just feels really confusing. I remember when I first started reading the research and I was like, oh my God, everything I've learned in dietetics is really kind of not true. Like I had a shirt that said like food is medicine. And now I'm like, no, medicine is medicine. Food is not medicine. They're two different things. And so it can be this really groundbreaking, eye-opening experience to learn about. But I, I agree. I think it's moving in that direction and there's a lot more awareness and acceptance because of well, the education. We, well, and we have the people that are in practice that are doing this right now, people like you and I, we like, I did some stuff that probably wasn't great for my patients yeah. 19 years ago, but you know what? I did the best I knew at the time with the information I had, we have to be able to realize that the practice of health and medicine evolves and adapts just the mm-hmm. way that it does ever. Cause 
we are not using surgical equipment and, and medications from 20, 30, 50 years ago. It would be ridiculous to think that we would do stuff like that. But then when we talk about food and nutrition, we say, oh, well, you know, Ansel Keys published the study in 1950. And so we're going to fossilize it and say that it can never change. Well, that's kind of ignorant because science and our knowledge of, of what is true and untrue really gets better over time. And to be open-minded, I just ask that if you are listening to this and you are a healthcare professional to just at least be open-minded to the idea that what you learned 10, 20, 30 years ago might not be supported by evidence that we have now. And it doesn't mean anything bad about you. It just means like, let's just get up to speed here. And they might still be teaching the research and, 10, right. 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And if you're, <laughs> if you're publishing a book and you're putting the food pyramid on the inside <laughs> cover of the book, please don't do that. You yeah. know, this is not going to land well with every single person and that's fine. Not every single person has to like me or believe me or whatever. I am practicing with integrity, what I know to be true and to be supported by evidence. And if you want to join me, then that's great. I would love it. People like you and I are the ones that are going to make this possible for others. Because once you see it, let me tell you how big even an awareness of this was. I didn't even know 10 years ago. I, I probably didn't even know five years ago what health at every size, what that even was. I didn't even know the acronym. And once you see this stuff, you cannot unsee it. It's like emerging from the matrix. And that's good because I am not going to go back to that. I'm not even a little bit tempted to slip back into that old way of life, either personally or professionally, because I have seen stuff that my eyes cannot unsee. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you have that deep science background of your medical degree. And then on top of that, your master's in nutrition and public health, it just goes to show that it's not simply just about, oh, this is just making fat people feel better. It's like, no, when you actually have the credibility to dive into the research and say, yeah, honestly, the health at every size way of treatment is really credible. It's just really validating, I think. And so that's why I really wanted to have you on here and say, here's a doctor who's done all of this research. And I didn't even know you did that much research. So I just loved hearing about your story and how deep you were like, I'm going to nerd out and not just look into it for myself, but fully study it. I and I think that that's awesome. And so if you're hearing this message and you are resonating, then there are places for you and there are ways to engulf yourself in this mission and advocate for centered care that's not on, on your body size and change. Yeah. yeah. So if they want to find you and connect, which I'm sure they all do, where can <laughs> uh, the listeners contact you? If they've made it this long, I feel pretty confident that they're committed, right? Yes. <laughs> no, Listening but... on like two times speed, I'm sure. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that, which would be a tough one with me talking. Cause I know oh, I yeah, talk same. fast. Um, so my name is Maggie Landis and I am Maggie Landis MD everywhere. I'm sure that Marissa will put this in the show notes and everything, but yeah. I am Maggie Landis MD on Instagram and Facebook. I am the most active. Uh, my website is Maggie Landis MD. And then my podcast is called the Eat Fluencer podcast. So if you're a podcast listener, which you probably are, if you're listening to this one, um, put that on your playlist. And I talk about all these same things. My episodes drop on Wednesdays. 
Love it. Well, thank you so much. I, this was a long one, but it was so helpful, insightful, inspiring, empowering, all of the adjectives that I could use to just say, super appreciate you being here and providing all of your wonderful insight with us. And we'll have to connect again soon. Well, you're very welcome. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. I am positive you loved hearing Dr. Maggie Landis talk about these topics as much as I did. So if you did, do not forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts for Behind the Binge. I would super appreciate it. It just really helps get this message out there. If you have any podcast requests, be sure to head over to my Instagram, Behind the Binge, but there's dots in between it, so behind.the.binge. If any of you out there own the Behind the Binge handle on Instagram without the periods, let a girl know because it is weird to say the dots every time I push my podcast Instagram. So would love that. Anyway, chat with you over there. Thanks for listening and you'll hear me in the next episode.